Today's reading comes from Matthew 5:21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, we we come to you confessing that this text gives us a little bit of hardship, that we don't understand the full implications of what it means. So Lord, I ask that you'd take take our understanding and you would magnify it, that we would, at the end of this, worship you for who you are. In your name I pray, amen. So uh, I would like to introduce myself. I'm Heath, I'm part of the team here at Christ City, and I'm the guy, yes, apparently that's responsible for food and childcare. But today, you get to listen to me speak. It is a real joy. I've been away for a few weeks. I've spent a week in Salmon Arm doing a, an evangelism class at a small Bible school there. Last week I was at, uh, in South Vancouver and uh, preaching there. And yesterday I was in Abbotsford preaching at a missions thing for people considerably younger than my age. And it is really, really good to be home. So I just want to say I love you guys, and it is really good for me to be able to be up here and and, and speaking to you. Now, you can reserve judgment on whether you agree with me on that, but we can deal with that later. So I'd like to introduce you to a story. It was probably about 10 years ago. We moved into a neighborhood in Athens, Greece that was an anarchist neighborhood, and we'd heard kind of some of the, the rough things that went on. The police didn't go into this neighborhood. Uh, they would stay around the edges in their full riot gear, and, and, this, and the order was maintained through an anarchist kind of protection racket. It was like a mob. And so, you know, we were naive to this, and we get there, and we're about a month in, and it's an August night, and it's Athens, and it's amazing, and I actually, we have our kids in camp, and we're going to take my wife out on a date. So, you know, being a man, I, I, I scope around, and I find this I'm sick of Greek food at this point, and I'm, I'm really wanting something different. So there's a Spanish tapas restaurant a block from my house. And so it's 10.30 in, at night, and we're eating our supper, and I've probably got shrimp, and, and, and it's just a really romantic picture. Everything you can think about Greece, and it was there. And then I kind of hear a commotion kind of behind me, and I hear a yelling and screaming, and I see a dark-skinned man running as fast as he can with no shirt, he's bleeding in his arm, and he literally jumps over my table and into the restaurant. That's not something you, you know, he happens every day, right? Well, he was followed shortly thereafter by about 25, you know, anarchists. And we're eating supper. Everybody around us is eating supper. And over the course of the next hour, this group of thugs extricate this guy out of the restaurant and they start to beat him right in front of me you know any missions training that you've had does not prepare you for this and they they start to beat him and you know a few of us in the restaurant stand up and we're like come on man like this is stupid like you what is he doing 
Basically, we were told where to go, how to get there. And finally, it got to the point, I knew I had to step in or do something that this guy's going to die. And by this time, my wife, she steps up and she looks at me straight in the face. She's in my face like a pit bull. And she says, you can't get involved here because you're going to die. You are too hot-blooded in this. So I'm, I'm screaming at the guys, like, you stop it. So Mariko, my wife, grabs me by the hair, literally, and she drags me home. She, I'm not kidding you. I found out later that that man died in the hospital that night. His crime? Selling heroin in the local square, contrary to the protection racket of the anarchists. See, our text this morning, I was angry, I wanted vindication, and our text this morning gives us great difficulty in our anger. Let's just acknowledge this straight out of the gate. The weight of this text is heavy for us. I would argue that that Jesus' words here can give us considerable grief, particularly if we stop to consider the actual implications of Jesus joining together anger and murder. You see, we subconsciously try to ignore it, and we actively try to suppress this thing. We attempt to sever our day-to-day interactions with this command to not be angry and murder. Why? Because we feel vindicated. We feel uh, almost comfortable in our anger. Our anger is like a, like a sweater that we wear. Not Kurt Cobain's sweater that just sold for like $850 million. No, our anger is a comfortable sweater that's our own. And Jesus' statements here, they, they unravel us. It slowly unravels our sweater. See, our anger, as my, as my story illustrates, even if we don't do anything, Even if we chicken out and get drug home, our anger gives us the satisfaction that we were right. Now, if you think I'm kidding, if you think I'm overstating this issue, then let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you drive? How many of you commute to work on a bicycle? Okay, there are a few brave ones, I know, and you're afraid to put your hand up right now because you're outnumbered, right? Okay, story time with Heath. You know, those that know me say I can't tell anything without telling a story. So I live in, you know, on the corner of of Pender and Victoria. It's a hundred-year-old house, and it's got one of those big old-fashioned porches. Now, I don't know whether it's because I've got, like, adult FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, but one of the highlights of this house for me is the big porch. And I get to sit there. I can, like, parse Greek verbs, read kind of cool theology stuff with my coffee, all the while, simultaneously, my extroverted self is being, having fun, engaging everything that goes on around me. You see, my street, Victoria, is a commuter street. At certain times of the day, there are cars going down there to hit Hastings. Pender is used by cyclists to commute. And periodically, it, it, it gets really entertaining. So one, probably the only day of sunshine that we had in the last two months, I'm sitting out there enjoying my coffee, and I'm, I'm looking at something, I don't even know what I was reading, and all of a sudden you hear the screech of tires, and I hear a string of expletives. I'm like, ooh, that's unique. I've never heard that put that way before like that. And I look up and I see this guy in all spandex. Like even his helmet was spandex. Spandex all the way down to his feet. He's cruising on this road bike, and this old guy in the F-150 with a beard like mine, he's got his hand out the window, get him like, you, whatever. And... The guy on the bicycle casually rides straight through the sign and he gives them the five-finger salute as he goes by. Now, 
I would love to say that would be entertaining, but that happens with such regularity that I call it a Vancouver caricature. It's, it's ridiculous. It's not even funny anymore. Now, I'm sure the majority of us here have been on either side of this equation. We've either been the one who has perpetrated the altercation or have been the recipient of the you know, altercation. There is a reason why we have a term called road rage. In fact, sadly, one of my good friends is dealing with the consequences of a road rage incident that went horribly bad, ending in murder. Like, I'm not kidding you. Anger is a real thing, and it has serious consequences. Now, I won't ask you how many times this week, in the snow driving, you've cursed out somebody because they've slushed out and crossed over into your lane. Ah, I want to ask how many people were in an accident this week. I read an article that, like this week, there was like 18,000 ICBC claims, 12,000 of which were in this city. Yeah. So, I'm confessing to you this morning that in shame that the lips that I use to praise God are the same ones that when I pull in front of my house to parallel park, I curse the guy who tries to pass me as I'm swinging out to parallel park. That is like a serious hot button issue for me. I just lose my mind. How many are there? Yeah. Okay, there are, I have another really hot button when I drive. You know, you're, 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 there's two lanes, right? And you're in the left lane, and you're in a hurry, and you want to get there. And, and you're in the fast lane, and you stop at a red light, and there's a guy in front of you, and everything's good. And then the light turns green, and he turns his left signal light on. How many people lose their minds when that happens? Yeah! And I'm like, I'm, I'm ready to go, like, turn green and explode out of my clothes in my car. Yeah. See, the worst part of this anger bit is we feel vindicated and righteous. I feel like I'm the one that's being wronged. You see, our text this morning (laughs) relates to our driving habits. You see, our lack of self-control in the driver's seat highlights this text perfectly. We are given here an opportunity to pause and consider that our anger breeds murderous threats. Now, before we're tempted to fall headlong into the rabbit trail of what ifs and and what about this and what about justification for anger and and to qualify it all away, we need to look at what Jesus is actually saying here to us and deal with the seriousness of anger. So our outline is, is, is thus. We're going to roughly follow the flow of the text. We're going to look at what has been said. We will look at what Jesus says. And then we will look at the implications of what Jesus says. So what's been said? Our text this morning has thrust us into a different area in the Sermon on the Mount. We, you know, we started in September with all these Beatitudes, but we're in a new section now. And Jesus is expanding on this assertion that Jake brought to us last week, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. As, as crazy and as amazing and as fatherly as that sounds, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So Jesus then gives us six, um, I guess I would call them case studies, of how the heart of this law is to be lived out what, what it's supposed to look like and the implications for it. Now, scholars refer to this uh, dialogue as the six antithesis. So it goes a little bit like this. It says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, that's the antithesis there. It's not, you have heard it said, do not murder, and I say to you, hey, what the heck, murder indiscriminately. That's not the antithesis there. The antithesis is what they have said to what I say. 
And each of these case studies, Jesus addresses a portion of the law, and he states that, look, it's been interpreted to the letter like this, specific, you know, cause and effect. But I say to you what the heart of the law is. Now, one thing must be crystal clear here. One thing must be at the forefront of our minds as we look at these over the next six weeks is that Jesus is not um, asserting that he's on, in a one in a line of interpreters. He does not reinterpret the law for us. He inserts himself into the law. He is the author. He is the fulfillment. Therefore, his voice is superior, his voice is true, and his voice is ultimately authoritative. He is the voice that we need to listen to. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees hated him. This is why all of the teachers of the law in Jesus' time, this is why they tried to kill him, kill his followers, and ultimately tried to suppress his message. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now Jesus is going way back to, the, to the, the foot of Mount Sinai in this thing called the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, this is what he's referring to. The Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. Now murder is a capital offense, right? Even in some states in the United States, it's still a capital offense. What does that mean? If you kill somebody, you die. You know, it's not rocket science. We get this. Okay, so depending on how you uh, deal with biblical history, since these events at Mount Sinai, you know, it's a, it's a mountain in the Middle East, and from these events to the time of Jesus is roughly 1,400 years. 1,400 years of interpretive rubric. 1,400 years of, of, of a grid work to say, well, if you, if you just, you know, if, it, if this happens, well, maybe we can do this. At the time of Jesus, this law was cause and effect. See, Jesus here does not have an issue with the law itself. Clearly not. But the scope of interpretation. We all know murder is a bad thing. Now there was a, a really bizarre story that came out last year. One that kind of scratched my head. There's a story about a megachurch pastor in the States who was accused of hiring a hitman to kill his son-in-law. Like, I have a son-in-law. But I actually like him. Just imagine what it took to get to the point where you wanted to kill your son-in-law. But it was even weirder because his son-in-law happened to be a, a, not just a peer, but a, a ministry rival. Now, can you imagine Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> Awkward. Yeah, in this commandment, Jesus here, he says, thou shalt not kill. He says, it's just reduced it. You've reduced it to cause and effect. Don't do this. Because if you do, you'll be punished to the full extent of the law. He says, look, that's what you've truncated it to. Now, I live a block from Value Village, and I like to go there for two specific reasons. One is kind of a, a weird reason. I actually like to people watch there. It is, it is amazing. You sit on the bench there, and you watch people come and go. And I, one of the highlights is watching people get kicked out for trying to steal. Like, they put up all sorts of fights. It's really entertaining. Sorry. Confession. 
The other thing is eventually, you know, sometimes I like to buy things. So if I'm in the change room and I'm trying on a shirt, I'm like, oh, that doesn't fit. I, need, I don't need the skinny fit. I need the classic fit, right? And so or I try on a jeans and on the sign, there's a sign on the door that says, shoplifters will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. In effect, that says, don't steal. Otherwise, you'll be liable to judgment. See, Jesus contrasts this reduced view by saying that the law and its effects are much greater, are much more than just cause and effect. And punishment is much greater than just judgment in the here and now by your peers. This brings us to point number two and what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Man, I've said a lot worse things than you fool to people. And I'm like, oh. So a week and a half ago, I was teaching this evangelism course at Miller College of the Bible. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who, who had taken the course a couple years uh, earlier. She's a third-year student and uh, she was taking a course on the book of James. And I thought, oh, how's it going, you know? She's, this, this girl is amazing. She says, oh, man, my head and my heart hurt. I'm like, what? She said, yeah, today we had a discussion on temptation and sin. And I always thought, you know, sin was just my actions, my response to that. And, you know, that I gave, you know, if I gave into temptation, that was where the problem was. But if I didn't, okay, whatever. She says, I used to console myself thinking that, I always thought that, all of that's just temptation. But I realized that I was just using that as an excuse to cover up my internal sin. And then she said to me this. She said, if I sin in my heart, if I sin in my heart and my mind, and if that's true, then it has to radically change how I live, doesn't it? See, this third-year Bible school student, that day fully grasped the heart of what Jesus is trying to say to us here. In the dining hall on a Thursday afternoon, I preached the gospel to this young lady and I actually said to her, yeah, you're far greater and worse than you possibly could think. I left her with the truth that she is so much worse than she could ever imagine, but the grace and love of God is so much greater than she can ever hope for. The hope of the gospel is that we are accepted on the merit and the work of Jesus himself, rescued from the wrath of God. Jesus is saying to us this morning that we are far worse than we can possibly imagine comprehend this sixth commandment here that jesus addresses to us it's a diagnostic it's a glimpse into where our heart is at when we're angry when we exhibit at a heart level we exhibit murder and thus we are subject to judgment you see jesus doesn't just wide widen the nature and the scope of, of the crime so to speak he actually widens the ramifications and the punishment for it. I'll read this again. You have heard it said, what, <clears throat> excuse me, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Not only does Jesus widen the scope of the command, unhinging it from cause and effect but he also ramps up the consequences killing is not just about a physical reality and we kind of know this to be true and jesus addresses three things here he says when when we're angry 
when we're insulting, and when we demean people with our words, like you fool, we're actively engaged in behavior that destroys reputation, status, value to society, emotions. The result is we might as well kill them. We've destroyed their reputation. We've destroyed everything when we do these things. This is hard for our world to wrap our heads around, isn't it? This, we live in a cause and effect world. See, we want to set up a rubric or like a quotient that says, if you have this much anger, this much punishment. If you have this much anger, this much punishment. If you have this much anger, it's you know, exponential. This is what we want to do. This is what our hearts want to do. Last summer, we, we went through a series in Proverbs, and the author of, of Proverbs there, Solomon, he understood the heart of this of this uh, text here for us this morning, this command. And in Proverbs 12, 18, Solomon says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Our anger, our anger particularly in our words, are as deadly as being impaled by a sword. Man, when we use our words this way, we kill, we destroy people. We destroy their reputation and their status. But Jesus also widens the scope of the punishment. He says, look, in our anger, we're liable to like the local government. In our insults, we're liable to like the Supreme Court. And when we demean people with our words, we're liable to the hell of fire. Ooh, that's a Debbie Downer. Scholars debate on the progressive nature of these commands, but I think no matter how you look at it, Jesus is saying, look, if you are actively engaged in anger, and if you get that anger comes to the point where you're insulting somebody and you're demeaning somebody, the punishment is the same. It's not just a physical reality. The punishment is separation from God himself, the fire of hell. That is a hard truth for us, isn't it? The, the consequences are far greater than just a physical reality. So before we hurriedly, you know, justify and rationalize our anger, I want everyone this morning to think of that difficult person that's in your life. That one person that has that uncanny knack to rub you the wrong way. To push your buttons. Please don't say it's me. That one person that you say, oh, he's hard to love. Now, some time ago, my kids got me a DNA test for Christmas, and apparently I am Scottish and Irish, but my friends used to tease me that I was like a stick of dynamite with a fuse hanging down, with a big lighter there, ready, at any moment's notice I could go off. See, all of us with this somebody in our lives that we politely say we, you know, we love or we don't love, those people are the open flame to our stick of dynamite. When we have suppressed our anger, when we have caused and cursed them under our breath, when we've actively engaged and backstabbed them in the workplace, I don't think I'm overstating when Jesus says that we are liable to the fires of hell, eternal punishment for our actions. Why? Because in our anger, we are breaking the sixth commandment to not kill. Christ said we are far worse than we could ever imagine. You, are, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you 
that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is a hard message for us people. Why? Because we subconsciously believe we're good people, even though we should know we're not. This is hard because we actively suppress and bury our heads in the sand and pretending that this doesn't apply to us. We don't want it to apply to us because we have this thing called righteous anger, right? If we've been wronged, we want to feel justified in our anger. We want our anger to, to protect us to those who threaten our careers, to those who are threatening us, our, our reputations, our ambition, and our status. This, this results in a desire for revenge. And that's a nasty path. Our anger gives us the justice that we so want. Our unchecked anger leads to revenge. But Jesus gives no room here for justified anger. I wish it did, but Jesus gives no room for justified anger here. Jesus gives no room for anger, period. There's a Croatian theologian, his name is Miroslav Volf. In his book, Free of Charge, he gives us a really good picture of how anger, even, you know, if it's warranted, leads directly to the path of murder. Listen to Miroslav Volf. We acknowledge deep human fury. At the same time, we affirm that retaliation born from that fury is clearly morally wrong. Revenge doesn't say an eye for an eye. It says, you take my eye, I will blow out your brains. It doesn't say an insult for an insult. It says, you cross me once, you cross me twice, I'll destroy your character and your career. It doesn't say, you organize an act of terror and we will punish you. Oh, it says, you organize an act of terror and we will use the overwhelming military force of a superpower to recast the political landscape of an entire region. Ooh. Revenge abandons the principle of measure for measure and acting out of injured pride and untamed fear gives itself to punitive excess. That's why revenge is morally wrong. Now, I remember... Um, one time we had a family holiday. We were living in Greece. And it, every year, at the 28th of October, the Greeks celebrate this holiday called Ohide. And it's really significant. Um, during World War II, the Germans gave an ultimatum to the Greeks. Surrender or not surrender? Either you surrender or we will come and take you by force. So the Greeks, in their pride, what did they say? Ohi, meaning no. So they celebrate Ohide. A few days later, they were occupied. I'm not kidding you. They fought hard, but they were occupied. So the, we were in this winding road, and we were going to this mountain village because we found these you know, ancient uh, ruins that we were going to see. And, uh, and we noticed, it was 28th of October, and we noticed there was a big parade in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, oh, that's weird. So we stopped, we pull over, we ask a guy, what's going on? He says, oh, we're commemorating the, the massacre at Vestomo. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, during World War II, there was a resistance here. And uh, a few of us brave guys, we, uh, we fought against the Germans. We killed a few of their officers, and they took out our whole town. They, they killed women, men, and children indiscriminately. And this plaque and this memorial and this, and this parade every year commemorates this massacre. So we sat there in humble silence, looked at the 1,500 names on the plaque. Jesus, when looking at this command to not murder, links it directly to anger. Because he knows that our hearts, its default setting, its operating system, is revenge bored out of anger. When confronted with this scathing truth about us, if the implications 
of this, of this teaching of Jesus are true, then my third-year Bible school student friend is right. If believed, this should radically alter how we live, how we act, and how we speak to others, to those that have wronged us, and to those that we have wronged. But there is hope here, though. Jesus, in amping up this to become almost an impossible thing, does not leave us hanging, stranded, or worse yet, to the fires of hell. Jesus gives us a roadmap forward, a way to healing and restoration. Jesus does not give us a podcast on the 10 best tips and tricks to deal with anger. Jesus brings us to the implications of reconciliation. So the question I want to ponder this morning what does anger actually result in? What does anger result in in the context of our relationships? Anger causes brokenness. Anger causes the division. Anger causes estrangement. Ultimately, the death of the other person in your life. This is the logical finality of this brokenness. How many times in anger have you said to someone, you're dead to me. Picture that person that you had in your mind earlier. What would it take for you to have that person over for Christmas dinner? Now I realize that if brokenness and, and, and anger is in the context of your family unit, that might have been your Christmas. But it would take more than just an armistice, you know, a ceasefire of conflict. It would take more than, than just kind of like, okay, we're going to casually just deal with this here. We're going to be civil and pretend everything is okay. No. It takes reconciliation and forgiveness. An acknowledgement of the hurt, the brokenness, and an active desire to make things right. This is exactly what Jesus directs us to here in this text. Jesus calls us to reconciliation. We are actively to work towards restored relationship. Verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar there and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come quickly and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge the guard, and you will put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. The solution to estrangement due to anger is reconciliation not retribution. Jesus presents us with two everyday scenarios in his world of how we are to take advantage of this, how we are to make things right. The first one is in the context of proper worship. The second one is in regards to our, our justice and how, how justice is eked out. Ironically, both of these examples assume we're in the wrong. Yeah, have you ever thought to consider that? See, when dealing with worship, Jesus says, look, our horizontal relationships actually matter to him if you know your relationship isn't right with your brother make it right before you worship me god seems to actively want us to worship him in right relationship with those around the state of our relationships with one another is is, is deeply important to god the second scenario seems to state that you know the guilt is a foregone conclusion here and that we are on the way to be judged and we are to be pleading with those who are going to judge us to say, have mercy please please forgive me how can i make this right 
How can I ever pay back what I've done? We need to seek restitution and forgiveness before it's too late. The implication here is punishment. Jesus tells us that the antidote to anger, to fury and revenge, all that we talked about earlier, punitive excess, it's not that, but rather in the pathway to reconciliation, forgiveness, one in which we must take the first step. I have a sister. She's three years younger than me, and I love my sister deeply. Um, The unfortunate reality in that scenario was that I love my sister deeply by teasing her ruthlessly. And because I loved her so much, I invited all my friends to tease her ruthlessly as well. I did not realize, I'm a little thick-headed, I did not realize that my sister actually hated me. So one day, I could tell she wasn't having a good time with it. I'm like, what's wrong? And she told me where to go, how to get there, and what to do when I got there. I'm like, oh, that was random. She's like, no, it's not. I've hated, for, I've hated you for years. How, how do I make it right, Charlotte? How do I make it right? Oh, man, that led to a road of repentance, of going out of my way to make sure that she could trust me, that I had her back. My sister and I are great now. But man, it took four or five years before we, I could actually ever say that, well, maybe she doesn't hate me today. Family events were quite fun for a little while there. What if you can't go there, though? What if you've been too hurt? What if the other has broken trust so many times that there's no way you could ever forgive? I was talking to a guy a while ago whose daughter was raped in a church. How does that guy, how does that guy deal with his anger? How does that guy possibly work for reconciliation? How does that guy forgive the ultimate other? Why does God seemingly want us to surrender our need for fury and anger and revenge to him? Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, I've um, referenced him earlier. He was writing during the Serbian War. And in his work, Exclusion and Embrace, about forgiveness and reconciliation, in his preface to his book, he says this. After I finished my lecture... Professor Jürgen Moltmann stood up and asked one of his typical questions, both concrete and penetrating. But can you embrace a setnik? Now, it was the winter of 1993, and for months now, the notorious Serbian fighters called the setnik have been sowing desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities. I had just argued that we ought to embrace our enemies as God has embraced us in Christ. Can I embrace a nick? the ultimate other, so to speak, the evil other. What would justify that embrace? Where could I draw the strength for it? What could it do to my identity as a human being and as a Croat? It took me a while to answer, though I immediately knew what I wanted to say. No, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to. In a sense, this book is the product of a single, of a struggle rather, between the truth of my argument and the force of Moltmann's objection. That book has been the most changing book in my life. See, I don't find it a coincidence that the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
picks up on this theme of reconciliation, and he says this. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we may become the righteousness of God. In reality, in our own flesh, as Wolf articulated, we cannot and will not forgive the ultimate other. We can't. Anger and fury drives us to murderous thoughts. This text hits me hard personally. See, I was angry, and I could not forgive my step-grandfather who abused and assaulted my mother regularly. I wanted to kill him. My anger brewed, and I had a baseball bat in my car, and I was ready to drive to Washington State to do the deed. Our hope this morning presented to us in this text is that we are the ultimate other we are the person that is impossible to invite to christmas dinner we are the perpetrators of all kinds of evil and as paul says we the ultimate other were reconciled to god jesus left his glory think of this and he came to us to be the sacrifice sufficient for our reconciliation Jesus sought us on the road when we should be seeking others on the road. He sought us on the road and was punished for us. Jesus paid the ultimate price for the ultimate other, and that ultimate other is us. Jesus faced judgment from the council for our anger. He was dragged before the council for our careless insults, and he faced the fires of hell, freeing us from the need to protect ourselves with our malice and our words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are made new by the work of Jesus. And on his behalf, we have a job to do to proclaim this reconciliation in our own hearts to the Jesus that he introduced to in Matthew chapter 5. People of Christ City, we are stuck here with a dilemma this morning. This is a Debbie Downer's sermon. And we can believe that Jesus is saying to us that we can believe that, and we can believe that we are far worse than we could ever possibly imagine. We can say, yeah, on a heart level, when I'm angry, I exhibit murder. And I can say, yes, that's me. And then you can walk in freedom, not be crippled by that anger, knowing that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and he doesn't count your trespasses against you, your anger against you. He he, the result is actually you get the message of reconciliation, the very thing that you cannot get on your own. We can be like my, my Bible school friend and have our eyes opened and confess 
that if this is true, we can, it can radically alter how we live in society, in our families, in our friends. Or we could choose to wrap ourselves tighter in the sweater of our anger, consoling ourselves by the security that it brings. Now, if you're here this morning, and that's you, I get it. I totally understand where you're at. I plead with you, though. I plead with you. I please don't go there. I want to leave you with this story from Cain in Genesis chapter 4. You know, like our text in Matthew says, there was, there was an offering, and there were two brothers that gave offerings. Abel's was accepted, and Cain's wasn't. And, it, and Cain was furious. And God confronts Cain, and in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, God says to Cain this. He says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? If you do not do well, ooh, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. Now, that's some of the, that's the, probably one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture. But you must rule over it. So as the story goes, Cain in his anger, he leaves the sacrifice. He leaves the altar. And instead of seeking reconciliation, what does he do? He murders his brother in the field. Cain's anger wasn't a comforting sweater for him. It was a straitjacket that ultimately led him to being cursed and separated from everything that is good. So I implore you this morning, do not be like Cain. Please stand as we respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.